All right, thank you so much. So uh, first I'm gonna introduce my panel here. On the end is Amici Zigwe. <laughs> Amici is the head of content and business affairs for Official M FM. He oversees the company's business development, music initiatives, and music industry outreach, as well as legal affairs. They've got a number of thousands and thousands of customers, including Sony Red, IOTA, Fool's Gold, Fat Beats, many others. Amici was also the co-founder and owner of the legendary independent hip-hop label Definitive Jux, and a founding board member of A2IM, and many other things. Next to Amici is Kevin Arnold, who's the founder and CEO of IOTA. IOTA is, is one of the largest digital distributors of independent music in the world. He's combined his dedication to independence and unique understanding of the digital music world to benefit IOTA's global client base. Um, IOTA was sold to Sony in 2009. Kevin also um, runs Noise Pop Industries, which produces the uh, legendary Noise Pop Festival and Treasure Island Festivals here in San Francisco. Next to Kevin is Cindy Charles, the president and CEO of Cindy Charles Consulting. <laughs> Cindy's been working in the digital music space since 1997. She's currently doing business affairs and business development consulting in the digital media space for clients who include RIM, Spotify, Mog, Smule, Topspin, Soundhound, Echo Nest, and many others. Until recently, she was the, the head of business and legal affairs for MediaNet and has held senior management positions at MTV Networks, Warner Vision, and the Screen Actors Guild. And here next to me is Jamie Kitman. He's a lawyer and the president of Hornblow Group USA, the manager of OK Go, They Might Be Giants, Mike Dowdy, and Mike Viola. He's also worked with Violent Femmes, Yolo Tango, The Laws, The Beautiful South, The Meat Puppets, and many others. He also is the New York bureau chief for Automobile Magazine, a car writer for GQ and NPR's Car Talk, one of my favorite NPR shows. So anyway, we've got a lot, a lot of lawyers on this panel. Cindy, Amici, Kevin, and myself. No, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. Oh, you're not? <laughs> oh, you're not? So interesting, Amici, you run legal affairs, but you're not a lawyer? Or you're a recovering lawyer? No, no, no. no. I just, I, uh, I've had 20 years of reading contracts, so uh, my sword is sharp. Okay. Well, anyway, so what we have here, though, is a number of experts who've been working in the digital music space for a long, long time. What we wanted to do, this is, what I was going to say is this is not a legal panel. There are legal panels at 10.30 and 3.30 today that will get into the nitty-gritty of licensing. But what we wanted to talk about was emerging business models in the music space and what is the value exchange between the content owners and the distributors, um, the folks who help artists and labels get their music out to the public and find fans, and the technology companies who are building services um, around, around this content. So I'm just going to throw out a few questions. I think we've got um, a very um, opinionated group here. So I think you know, this may tend to be more fluid than other panels. But you know, sort of I'd like to throw out there the question is, what is the difference between the promotional use that drives awareness and sales of music for which artists and labels should be paid? Or, so in what instance is it deemed promotional use? In what instance is it something that someone should be paid? So, Cindy, maybe you want to take a, take a gander. Right. So I worked at MTV from 1995 to 2002. Prior to my getting there, at the inception of MTV, labels would produce music videos and provide them to MTV, and MTV would be able to monetize it with no revenue generated back to the labels uh, because um, it was viewed as promotional in nature. And it was, it was, uh, there were a lot of sales of records as a result of MTV's playing videos on their airwaves. The, at, at some point in time, the labels woke up and said, wait a second, we're paying for these videos, you're monetizing them, you're selling advertising against them, and we should be paid, and MTV did start paying so it went from being promotional in nature and viewed as you know free content that MTV would be able to monetize to uh, MTV paying for content and so there was a, a shift in the thinking and you know along the lines of terrestrial radio MTV viewed itself as terrestrial radio only video so it was just now, I would say, predominantly, and this has been going on for years, content owners 
uh, do not view these types of outlets as promotional in nature, where they would give away the content for free. And if you're monetizing content, and, and this happened with music video actually on the web, where I can't remember when, uh, what Christmas it was that Doug Morris saw his grandson watching a, a music video on Yahoo and said, wait a second, why are we not monetizing this? So it's, there was a point in time there, and, and then Vivo was created out of that. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. So it seems with, with what YouTube and Vivo are doing is they're you know, promoting the use, but they're also beginning to share some of the revenues with the artists and labels. So Amici, in your experience, you know, have you, and, and Jamie, yourself, is, are you finding that, you know, is this money trickling down to the artists in, in the value exchange between you know, what? Well, speaking as a former uh, label person and manager, it depends on the artists, and it depends on the team around them, and it depends on their savviness in extracting that revenue, and it depends on the quality or the, the demand for their content. If you have demand for your content, if you have multiple platforms or entities that are looking to uh, put your content mm -hmm. on their site or what have you, sure, there's ways to make money out of that. But mm -hmm. I think my issue is for your average artist, the one who maybe isn't super popular right now, but who is whose content is being used to help drive traffic, even if it's marginally, are getting nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, I can speak to an artist who gets a lot of traffic, which is OK Go. Mm -hmm. And I would say um, that trickle is the operative word um, in terms of income of what we see from places like YouTube mm -hmm. and, and Vivo, which, I mean, we, our, our old label has a deal with Vivo. And, Perhaps they get paid and then don't pay us on. So I can't really speak to what that stream is. But the YouTube one is um, so small based on how many um, streams we've done um, that I would say that it's not a business model. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's like finding change in the street. Right. Well, I don't know if anyone saw the OK Go Chevrolet ad around the Super Bowl, which was fantastic. But so it seems to me that you... I hear a lot of talk about where the money in the music industry now is not in the sale of recorded music, but it's in sponsorships and live events. So is that something that you as a manager, you know, were you know, seeking out sponsorships from brands to enhance the, the revenue that you may not be seeing? Oh, yeah. No, it, we have no choice but to do that. Uh, it's actually, you know, I'm kind of an old hippie, so the thought <laughs> of it initially stuck in my craw, but it, it was... A, everybody else stopped caring before I did, so that made it easier. But, but two, I think it was the only uh, way that you were going to get sufficient money to run a, a, a proper modern rock band. Um, mm -hmm. However, in terms of it being a model for other bands, I think it's, it, it's to the point he was just making, which is that it's, you know, it's great to get Chevrolet to sponsor your video and to give you, you know, a million dollars to go and make something insane, but you know if the the precedent is if the first step is that you have to you know have uh, you know 175 million downloads. Um, so you know not everybody can do that. It certainly doesn't describe a model for developing acts. I mean mm -hmm. I wish I could do that for every one of my acts, but it's it's hard. Mm -hmm. You know I mean with all the time in the world, it still might be impossible for for many people. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I can, I think when it comes to, in general, business models being promotional or commercial, um, I don't think there's many that are entirely one or the other, mm -hmm. right? Like most platforms these days are going to serve some right. role, even if it's just your own website, your own band caps. But, you know, that, that determination hopefully is up to the artist. And I think the way that it usually goes is you give it away until you can sell it, right? right. And so even if you're not going to give all of your album away on... Um, on a, a streaming service or whatnot, you still might be able to put some of it in there and free or price it really low. And those things are all basically just there to build up that demand until you can uh, find other ways to monetize right. your stuff, like commercials. Right. I think that's interesting to think about sort of the freemium model. You know, I was at Topspin for a couple of years and we encouraged, and we worked with OKGO, okay but we encouraged artists to give away a free download to help develop a relationship with your fan base. You know, in exchange for a download, you get, a, get you know get an email address or a like on Facebook, and that way, um, you know, create an ongoing relationship where your freemium, it's, which is not dissimilar to what many of the services do as well. You know, some of the you know services will say you know Sound SoundCloud. You know, I think Official FM. You know, you get a little bit of services for free 
and you get more, you know, if you pay more, you get more premium services, access to more, more data. Do you, maybe Kevin and Amici, you can talk a little bit about um, the value exchange where distribution, promotion and distribution platforms like, like IOTA and Official FM, you know, um, what is the sort of sweet spot between where um, an artist will say, you know, I, I'm ready to upgrade, you know, I need these more services. Well, I think it depends on their needs. Speaking for Official FM, you can use the platform for a variety of needs. I mm -hmm. mean, we're not, we provide the platform and the tools for people to engage with their audience or drive to their own consumer destinations, whatever the case may be. We don't participate in those transactions. Mm -hmm. We operate a, on a fee basis. So for us, we're pretty agnostic about the whole thing, whether you're a an unsigned or indie artist trying to do their own thing or you're a label with 20 uh, a 20 artist roster, you can use our platform however you want to use it. Mm -hmm. If you want to use it only promotionally, great. If you want to use it, our tools to drive to iTunes or drive to your commerce platforms, you know, great. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, we, we want to be out of the way. We want to be invisible. Our, I think uh, <clears throat> last several years, disintermediation has been a big thing. We don't look at it that way. We look, we'd rather facilitate than disintermediate. You know, I think it's somewhat of a myth that you don't need some sort of apparatus, you know, even if you're an indie artist. There's a whole lot of DIY capability, but you still need some sort of platform, a team, or something to help, help you get your work done, you know? Mm -hmm. And for us, it's more about providing the means to make your workflow more efficient and, and, and get to point A to point B to point Z in a more economical way. However the user chooses to, it's not up to us, it's up to them. Yeah, you know, I think there's a, it's interesting, there's a lot of similarities, perhaps philosophically, about how we sort of sit and relate to the, to the rights holder um, between our businesses. And I think we both sort of work in different spectrums of that field. But, you know, IOTA is also going to be there behind the scenes, meant to give a client a rights holder control to do, you know, to monetize their content where and how they want to around the world in the digital marketplace. Um, but part of that overall plan or strategy should include um, the types of services that companies like Official FM put up there. And, and you know, again, part of that's going to be engaging with your fans directly, giving away some music, trying to build up an audience. Um, and hopefully as well, when you get to that point and have fans that are willing to pay for your music, make it really easy and convenient for them to go and find it um, and drive that traffic into a store uh, and into a place that it can be monetized. So um, yeah, I think the good thing is that there, there are options and lots of ways to, uh, to approach the market pretty flexibly these days. And also, let me also add that <clears throat> sometimes data is just as, as valuable, if not more valuable, than money itself, especially for emerging artists. Mm -hmm. So to be able to have an understanding of, of where your audience is or who's listening to your music, where they're, how they're engaging with it. Uh, um, you know, a lot of younger artists have a hard time getting booked, getting booking agents or going on tour because the booking agent can't really determine whether they have an audience or, or not, if there's any demand for them. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to show them with data mm -hmm. that you have all this, all this engagement, all these impressions, all this activity for your music, you can build a case to move forward where you actually then are able to enter the commercial realm and start making money. So mm -hmm. it's uh, the pr promo and the analytics and all that sort of data is, is critical, especially for the emerging apps. Right. That is interesting. The use of data it brings up something interesting that we were discussing before the panel is that you know, there are services that are compiling data like Next Big Sound, who will, you know, then selling the, the data. Then when you're doing, um, distributing your videos on YouTube, you know, they're paying you the ad share, but they may be using that data to do ad retargeting and building other businesses upon that. And I've heard a lot of talk about, you know, at what point, you know, will the artists and, and labels be able to participate in that revenue as well? And, you know, is it a slippery slope? Um, but looking at things from the other side, so from the licensing standpoint, so... There's um, music services, you know, app companies, subscription services, who must enter into license agreements, um, you know, either through through you know a statutory rate or through you know the labels in order to build their businesses. You know, can you talk about Cindy has represented many of these companies? You know, what are the challenges? What are the the um, issues that come up? You know, what is the value of doing a statutory license, or when when does it make sense to go and do a direct deal? Right. So when I look at a company, I look at what their needs actually are. Do you need licenses from all of the major labels in order to create a business? 
If so, that's, a, you know, there's a set of challenges and we don't need to go into that. You have to get label and publisher rights and, and uh, you need probably, a, uh, you know, some, some VC funding in order to do that. Uh, if it's, if you can create, uh, if, if your idea is, I don't need la licenses, but I can create something around DMCA radio, that's another route that's you know pretty straightforward. You can go to Sound Exchange and get mm -hmm. licenses through that, and you know get some. If you need PRO licenses, that's that's fine. But if you need one-off licenses, so for example, I work with this company called Smule, and they don't need licenses from all of the major labels. They need licenses from publishers for certain apps, including a Mag Magic Piano and uh, their magic series and their, they have some other uh, voice apps. So we go to the publishers, but they identify songs and we go out and we get the songs and have relationships with EMI Music Publishing or Warner Chapel, send them licenses and they, they provide the, the content, they get approval from the artist, yes or no, and it's, it's actually pretty straightforward. So, but, the reason it's straightforward is because Smule has a lot of traffic and they have, you know, and they have a, a reputation. And so it makes it a lot easier when you start, you know, pure startup, we have an idea, can we get licenses? It's a little more challenging. So you have to look at then, well, what's the value proposition? The companies, the, the music publishers and, and ultimately the labels when they need master recordings will look at a Smule and say, well, you have X millions of users. There's marketing and promotional value to that. You have data, there's value to that. And so we don't have to um, look at this purely as an economic arrangement. Mm -hmm. We can look at it as a marketing and co-marketing and promotion arrangement. Mm -hmm. But when you're starting out and there, you know, you don't have that, it's, well, what can you provide in all of those buckets in addition to an economic, um, you know, whatever the economics are that would enable the labels, publishers to um, pay attention to you and give you those rights. And as, as an artist manager, Jamie, you know, how, how do you feel about that, about the use of your artist's content, you know, in fledgling services, you know, and again, it, you know, it all comes back to, you know, do you see it as an economic opportunity or promotional, a combination, you know? In, in our experience, if the, those fledgling things tend not to be um, particularly lucrative, mm -hmm. it does mean we're against them. If they're, mm -hmm. if they're interesting, you know, we would just participate mm -hmm. on that basis. And, you know, I mean, there's, I, always a chance something exciting might happen mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of it uh, blowing up. But, mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, I, I, I think we're pretty open to most of those things, but mm -hmm. we just don't, you know, we don't expect a lot. You don't expect a lot. Is yeah, and, and as far as data sharing, I, we're not familiar with companies in particular of that type mm -hmm. that, that, you know, offer to share data. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not, I mean, I'm pro data, but it's not always clear to me what you do, you know, if you're a rock band with data in mm -hmm. that, like, you know, you're not really going to change, you know, if you, if you really have a vision of who you are and what you are to start with, you know, some data may not really mm -hmm. change what you do. Although, I, mean, yeah. although I, would, I think that, you know, certainly the data that is available is showing you, you know, where are your fans, you know, if you, you know, I've heard, I've heard Tim Westergren from Pandora talk about this, that when you, they can identify, you know, where people are physically located or listening to your music. If you're booking a show, um, there's, you know, ways to reach out, you know, at Topspin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of things like that yeah. that are, are useful. But I think it's, it's actually the area that we found it most valuable mm -hmm. is in talking to potential sponsors mm -hmm. um, who you know, live and die about that stuff. Right. So it's it's more on that end that has been most useful to us. Right. What, let's talk a little bit about the subscription services, just to that point that, you know, um, there was some hesitancy on the label side about, you know, the, the how, you know, how the artists and labels are going to get paid with the subscription music services, you know, $10 a month, all you can eat. And now Spotify is, you know, also allowing downloads, you know, within that subscription um, fee. Do, do you all, everyone on the panel, do you see that that, that business model is something that's promoting music? Is, is the allowance of downloads cannibalizing music sales? 
Um, you know, we've heard some of the, you know, Rob Wells and Dennis Cooker have spoken about their perspective. You know, Kevin, maybe from the, the label's perspective, um, you know, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that o overall, I think that, you know, it's a little bit of, um, well, not much ado about nothing, but but about, <laughs> about something that we don't really understand yet. I think mm -hmm. that the... Uh, you know, from my standpoint, I wouldn't say for any client within IOTA's business that you you are absolutely not going to be impacted with a new release on, on CD sales at this point yet. But mm -hmm. overall, it looks like it's additive to us, and it, it hasn't sort of impacted in aggregate the growth of the download stores and, mm -hmm. and those trends um, in, in serious ways. So, I mean, I, we have done, you know, over the last uh, several months, started to, to, to look at a bunch of different case studies to look at you know, what might happen to dance and electronic music in which territories that Spotify is impacting, what might happen to a rock band and stuff. And, and in some cases, we do see that, that there seems to be some impact, but it's certainly not something that applies across the board. And, and it's really, I think, uh, questions just beginning to be answered and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, for me and, and for our client base of independent artists, based on the sort of promotional to commercial sort of scale, uh, I think it's got a lot of value from that standpoint, and, and we've always been big supporters of, of, uh, of subscription and streaming music services. Mm -hmm. they're, they're good for independence, they help drive discovery, there's, there's no large barrier of purchase there. And, uh, and in fact, we've seen our, our market share in these types of services over-index and what it does to download stores. Mm -hmm. So I think that alone, you know, on the whole, you know, might not be right for every single person, but on the whole, I think it's a good thing. And it's, uh, it's a quickly, you know, it's a very fast-growing segment of our overall business. Yeah, I agree that the, the data does not appear to be in, and, you know, and, and there are the examples of Black Keys and Coldplay that have withheld their content and windowed it, and uh, I think that until we know, uh, you know, they had huge sales, but they would have huge sales anyway. So I think the data needs to come in, and, and I think that the, the, and I believe the artist should monetize as much as possible, obviously, but if there's no data that really proves out that windowing increases sales, I think that the negative effect is it really hobbles these services because you're paying $10 a month on the promise that you're going to get day and date content. Yeah, it's a big sort of catch-22 for the industry and a tough spot for sure for the services because if you aren't offering an ubiquitous, you know, a comprehensive catalog that, yeah, the, the goal there is anything you want to listen to anywhere, anytime, right? And, uh, as more people pull out, it hurts that overall. Uh, the model doesn't really work for the business, for the industry, until it scales to a, a, a massive amount. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, there's you know, several things going on, I think, that are going to impact that and, and slow, that, slow that growth to critical mass. Yeah, it's a great value proposition for the consumer, for the end user. I think Spotify is mm -hmm. it's, it's a wonderful platform. For the labels, for most labels, not so much right now. We'll see when it scales, but someone like iTunes, it's, it's a more equal value prop mm -hmm. for everyone in the food chain. Mm -hmm. uh, and Spotify or Radio, RDO or Mog may get there as well, but yeah, the jury's still out on that, in my opinion. Right. What about, let's talk about Facebook. Um, you know, Facebook has emerged as, you know, you know one of the pre pre predominant sort of promotional platforms, you know, where you can listen, you can see what your friends are listening to. There's been a lot of companies been built on top of Facebook, like, you know, Root Music, Buddy Media, that FanBridge, Fanzy, that are, you know, en enabling um, artists and labels to reach their fan base, you know, in, in an, an organic way. You know, where, where do you guys see that going? Do you think that, you know, this is an effective tool for reaching fans and also for selling music? Or is it just about um, having fun? I think it's like, it's, uh, for us, we, we look at it as a great platform to reach fans. If you have fans, you mm -hmm. know, we feel our tools are a great way to connect with your fans and push your music to them. But if you don't have a community, you know, that you've built on Facebook, it's, it's irrelevant, you know. Um, you could have all the fancy technology in the world, but you, if you have 10, 20, 100 people uh, following you or liking you, I mean, it's not going to do you much good on Facebook. Mm -hmm. But it is an incredible platform if you want to reach as many people as possible if you know how to leverage the platform. Mm -hmm. I think like anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think, I definitely think the music integration is, is great. Um, if people are comfortable with sharing uh, all their dirty listening secrets, <laughs> and the, uh, it's, it's a good thing. Um, 
yeah, for me personally, I definitely, uh, I watch the stuff, appreciate it. That social aspect of music discovery, um, something RDO focused on early on, for mm -hmm. example, I think is, uh, is a really powerful thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, that said, I think it drove in a bunch of initial growth and, mm -hmm. and I think everybody's waiting sort of like what's next in the evolution of this Facebook integration and, and where is it gonna, mm -hmm. you know, what, what will people do with it? What will take the business? Group listenings just launched, I think, and, and that's sort of a new exciting feature. We'll see where it goes. My, in my experience with Facebook has been that it's been a fantastic tool for artists to build a fan base, but that it hasn't necessarily translated into a commercial platform, that purchases are not happening um, you know, on, fa on Facebook. But I think that may be changing. What about you, Jamie? Have you effectively used Facebook, you know, the artists that you're working with? I, you know, um, I would say, you know, sort of. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, again, um, we haven't really used it to drive a super lot of, of commerce, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, it helps us to sort of, you know, um, you know, sort of a, um, a, a systematic way of having contact with your fans mm -hmm. and orderly in that, in that sense. Um, so we, we learn about them that way, but, um, uh, you know, we're sort of, I guess, in the camp of people waiting to see what, what's waiting really next. Interesting. I mean, you know, Cindy was at MTV back in you know the mid '90s when I was at AOL, and the value exchange that we had there was, you know, as Cindy said earlier, that you know MTV came out of the gate as a promotional platform for videos. AOL was paying MTV a lot of money to, to distribute their content, and you know, late 1996, you know, AOL became such a powerful distribution platform that we flipped the model and we said, you know you should be paying us. We are helping you reach, you know, millions and millions of people you, because of our platform. And so we, we entered into a long, long dance where we, you know, some, we paid them a little bit of money, they paid us a little money. And it seems to me that, you know, one of the things that we worked really hard back in the mid 90s was to prevent um, the sort of stalemate and prevent the, um, the, 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 you know, in, in, impinging the growth of both our company and their company and on behalf of the content owners. And I feel like that's what we're happening right now. There's a lot of distribution platforms that are emerging and, you know, the content owners and the, and the technology companies, we are still trying to figure it out. And it feels like, you know, everything is evolving. And what do you guys see as the, you know, sort of most exciting technology companies, you know, c c coming out of the gate these days that are, you know, helping artists reach their fans in new and interesting ways? You mean besides official FM? Yes. Right. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> besides your own. Okay, you can talk about your own. No, um, or is there nothing exciting happening? <laughs> well, okay, I can maybe be a little bit, <laughs> a bit more neutral. Um, I, there's a lot of them you've already mentioned, right? Um, the companies that are focused on Facebook, like Root Music, uh, mm -hmm. Bandcamp, and Topspin have really figured out new ways to, to engage. Um, if you're talking about the sort of direct fan to uh, consumer relationship mm -hmm. management. Um, yeah, beyond that, I think the, the analytics start to become really interesting and, and another company already mentioned, Next Big Sound, is sort of at the, uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, the head of that charge. Um, there's a lot more accessible to artists than there has been a, mm -hmm. a few years ago. But also there's Shazam, for example, yeah. Soundhound, which I think are very interesting companies. Soundhound, for example, you know, they have um, the ability to identify songs by, by humming, by hearing the song, and then you're, you're able to purchase downloads. And there are huge amounts mm -hmm. of sales mm -hmm. as re a result of the downloads. And then when you look at those types of deals, when you're talking to labels about or publishers, it's like, how do you quantify that? How does that come into the equation in terms of the overall deal? If you're sending traffic and, you know, you know promoting sales mm -hmm. of downloads, mm -hmm. that the labels or publishers necessarily view that as, as a value, but it should be. Because to the extent that these companies, you know, create sales of downloads, mm -hmm. that's something that obviously the, the artist label publisher, they want to see that. Mm -hmm. It's something they definitely tout, right, in their pitches right. is the high conversion rates of right. recognition services like that. So I guess the exciting they, companies are the ones that, that are able to foster sales um, and create new mm -hmm. revenue streams mm -hmm. 
you know, like a smule where mm -hmm. you're paying for songs with virtual currency. Right. And then of course, you know, companies that allow labels, artists, and, and publishers to participate in virtual currency mm -hmm. as, uh, you know. Or that the, is interesting. I mean, it is interesting because Again, I've, I hear rumors that um, you know the money that's being made today for artists is in is in live performances and in sponsorships. That most artists never even earn out their label advance if they're if even if they can get one. Can you speak to that a little bit, Jamie? Is it well, I, I think it's probably in the majority that was always true mm -hmm. that you would never earn out your advance. The difference was is that you used to get an advance, and now. Uh, <laughs> that you're, you're already a superstar if you're getting an advance mm -hmm. that's worth boasting about. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're pitiful. Um, and, and that's, you know, from, from the, my, my level of, of just like trying to run bands mm -hmm. or, to, or to even be a management company or a manager. I mean, you know, it's all based on revenue. And, and to say, oh, it's all about touring now. Well, you know, it was always about touring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and now, it's that's all there, you know. That's for some bands that may be all there is, mm -hmm. or you know, certainly anything they're going to make from, um, you know, selling music and and their publishing rights is is dramatically reduced. And mm -hmm. just as a model for developing new talent, it's it, you know a lot of exciting stuff is happening. Maybe this will come around, but you know nothing has replaced what was the highly imperfect system before, where you you know you. You had a band, and if they had, you know, 500 fans, they probably they were going to sell a couple thousand records. Mm -hmm. And if they sold 10,000 records, they were going to get a major label deal, mm -hmm. uh, or at least a big indie deal, which would probably generate, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in advances from a publishing deal, which would give, you know, a manager a commission, and and all these people were, you know, could quit their day jobs, mm -hmm. and then you had two years to find out if it was really going to stick. Right. And now. I, I see, I mean, this is anecdotal, I see a rise in bands that are upper middle class, um, a rise in, in bands who live with their parents, things like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, it, it really, the commitment required from the artist is a lot greater, I would say, you know, it, on the whole. And, and maybe that's not entirely a bad thing. I mm -hmm. mean, it was, there were too many bands and there were too many crappy records. Um, and, you know, maybe that's, you know, the, the uh, silver lining to the dark cloud, but, but it's still, I, I feel there's a real need to, to you know, for something to, to emerge that, that allows, you know, new talent for, to be developed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To be developed. So you mentioned publishing. So we, we, something else we talked a little bit about earlier that the United States is, you know, one of the only countries that does not have you know, a, a fee for the artists to be paid on radio. So, you know, there's the, the publishers. The sound recordings. The sound recordings, right, right, for the sound recordings. So the publishers, you know, if you have a service, you know, the radio, you know, ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, are making sure that the music publishers um, get paid. You know, do, do everyone here on the panel, do you think that's something that the U.S. should move towards something like other countries have? where the owner of the sound recording should be also paid? Or again, is that something else that's going to um, inhibit sales? Are you talking about um, terrestrial, terrestrial radio, radio for sound recordings? Exactly. Paying, uh, paying the labels for the use of uh, their, their masters. Because, for instance, for the internet radio stations you right. know, are, are paying. Yeah. But the terrestrial radio stations are not. I think you have to ask the question why the United States is not paying you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 the industry is not paying, and 99.9% of the rest of the world is. Mm -hmm. is, it, is there a real reason why, or is it just about keeping as much money as possible, you know? Mm -hmm. Because the, we're not investing, this payment is also an investment back into the culture and back into the, the artists and the, and the labels and the, and the musicians and everyone else who's creating this content. I mean, it's so hard to make a living as an artist these days. There's so much money changing hands between the majors and the, all the big platforms and, and advertising, but how much of that is really trickling down to mm -hmm. most of the artists? They're seeing nothing. So it's almost impossible. You said music is becoming more upper middle class, and, and I, I agree with that, but I think that also comes at a cost because I think a lot of the great culture is not driven from the upper middle class. It's driven from the working class and the lower class, kids who are hungry and have passion to get out of there, whether it was the Beatles whether it was uh, 
NWA, you, know, you go down the list, whether it was some of the greatest artists and, and creators of any kind of culture imaginable, Steve Jobs, you know? It's, uh, these are the people who are being left behind. These are the mm -hmm. people where the barriers uh, to entry are so high that a lot of them don't even try. And what are we missing out? Mm -hmm. you know, and I think my personal opinion is the quality of the music today is pretty low. There's so much of it. Mm -hmm. But it's, again, my personal opinion, it's, pro it's not that good. You know? I don't mean to offend anyone, but generally speaking, it's yeah, pretty mediocre. And, uh, and that's because a lot of the kids who, who, who normally would be inspired to get into music, they're going, they're going in different directions. They're going to go into maybe into technology instead, maybe into other forms of, of uh, industry, but they're not, I mean, look how expensive it is to get a rehearsal, I'm in New York, to get a re rehearsal space for a band is incredible, incredibly expensive for most of them. Mm -hmm. Who can afford this? A friend of mine once said, rock and roll is for upper middle class kids who can go, now is for upper middle class kids who can afford to go into debt. Hmm. So that's what interesting, that? so even with all the DIY platforms, you st someone still has to find it. So you gotta buy equipment. You gotta buy equipment. I mean, it's interesting. I've heard two brands now who have launched emerging artist programs. One is Converse. Yep. You know, Converse has, has built a recording studio in yep. Brooklyn where they're having kids submit music and they're flying the good ones there. And what they say is, you know, the, the music community has embraced us as a product. We're gonna give something back to them. They said, we can't make these kids famous, but we can give them a place to, to record. Yep. So, you know, then that, you know, begs the question, I think, you know, hopefully quality rises to the top and, and they'll get discovered. What, what do you all think are the most effective um, discovery platforms now? Is it the blogs? Is it Facebook? Is it the subscription services? Yes. All of them, <laughs> all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, still your personal networks of friends, yep. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so, to me, word of mouth, you just get it through maybe something that's not audible mm -hmm. these days, so. But it really still is radio, terrestrial radio. Yeah. I think for the vast majority of the population, it's terrestrial radio. 90% of the audience is getting their music not from blogs and, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. um, there's so much commuter, you know, people commuting back and forth to work and they're listening to the radio right. generally. They're mm -hmm. picking yeah, up, you know, I, it's I, passive listening, it's not. I totally agree with that. Um, not that my bands get played on the radio particularly, but uh, it's popular to say in the sort of the tech community that radio, terrestrial radio is dead, it doesn't mean anything. People go on and on about how, who cares? Mm -hmm. But um, I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people care and a lot of people have no interest in hearing new music particularly. I mean, the majority of music buyers you know, they want to. They want to buy something familiar, and they, you know, they. It's an affront to tell them if, if you like this shitty song, you'd probably like this shitty song. You know, <laughs> um, um, you know I mean, they're like, no, I want to hear the other shitty song that, <laughs> that, heard just that I just ago. heard on, on the radio. So, and and what's weird is, is you know, while. There are all these exciting opportunities with the technology for people to do new things and to get their music out. Radio itself, sort of the, the part of the story that people don't talk about, that they're, they're, it feels like, to me like they're like locked in an even tighter death embrace with the major labels and they, who control them completely. That's and right. so, yeah. so I think that speaks to your point about the, mu the music sounding just as bad or worse than it's ever done. Another um, thing that's not going away, right? So and 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 the, and the radio stations. I mean, if you think the major labels are reactionary, I mean, some of these radio stations are, you know, they're, you know, just getting their website to work, you know, at a at a minimal level, is, is, it completely defies them. And uh, <laughs> and and you know, there's a, a teenager who comes in once a month, you know, when he remembers to to to, right. to fix the site that's crashed, right. and that's like big bigger radio stations. And let's not also not forget that the vast majority of music sales are still on s via CD. It's not the internet. You know, so the, the traditional business is still generating most of the traffic, most of the discovery. While I do think that the technology side of it will soon hopefully supplant that, still most money's coming from CDs. It's not coming from downloads. Hmm. And most discovery is coming from terrestrial radio, not from the internet. So we've got, we're still in the middle of the dialectic. Maybe we're coming out of the antithetical part of it, but we're still in the midst of it. And, and we have, uh, I think, it's still a long way to go before we reach a point where we really are in a new ecosystem. Mm -hmm. 
So something Cindy mentioned earlier was about windowing, and it's something that you know the, that the movie industry has traditionally done. Well, they'll you know they'll release the film in the theaters first, and then they'll go to pay-per-view, and then they'll go to I don't know what the chain is. Then they'll go to airplanes. Then they'll go to you know DVDs. You know how do, how does everyone on this panel feel about the music industry moving to something like that? You know where they would release. Um, you know, the physical, you know, copies to buy and then put it on the subscription services, or do you think that that's stupid? <laughs> I think it depends on the artist. Uh -huh. I think it depends on their demographic. I think there's so many factors that play into your strategy. There is mm -hmm. no one-size-fits-all strategy for music to mm -hmm. me. I think uh, if you're coming from the punk or the hardcore scene or the metal scene, you're going to have a different way of looking at your audience and looking at just the marketplace than you are if you're a pop artist, you know? And your fan engagement is going to be different and the way you reach your fans. And you're on tour 200 days a year, so you automatically have a different understanding or, or, or relationship with the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's all situational. And you have to be savvy enough and have the right team around you to put together the right strategy for your scenario because mm -hmm. it doesn't work for everybody. That was what was so funny about when uh, Radiohead did that record where they, you know, where you could pay what you wanted. And there was, you know, a story in the Wall Street Journal about how, is this the future of the music business? And it's like, you know, you, you know if you're a, a platinum artist who's, you know, has a very techy fan base, that was, you know, it was an interesting uh, strategy. But, you know, but it, I don't think it, it would mean anything for the average no-name mm -hmm. band to do that, mm -hmm. you know. I think it... I think it means a lot less overall compared to the movie industry. Um, you know, windowing there, you've got a controlled environment in a theater. Maybe you're, if, if you've got really tight controls, maybe you'll be lucky enough to only have like a handheld video cam from the back of the theater be released onto the networks and stuff. Whereas music's still, even though it's, it's, it's all the same technology, it's much easier to produce, much mm -hmm. smaller files, much, much faster to download and propagate than films are right now. So. I think the overall impact makes a little bit less sense than it does in, in movies. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, like we talked about with the subscription services, uh, there's still a lot to learn about how much it's actually cannibalizing a sale anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the other side of position, of course, is that if, if they aren't getting it through Spotify or whatever streaming service, then they aren't buying it through iTunes and they're pirating it, right? So. Right. Well, I mean, do you think that, you know, I believe that people are generally good and that if you make it easy for them to buy things, they will. And if you make it impossible, then they're going to steal it. That's my personal point of view, um, which is, you know, I think has borne out as, you know, as business models have evolved. But as, a, as you're marketing music, you know, there's, you know, big, some, tiny bands generally don't have marketing budget, so they're going to take advantage of everything free that they can get their hands on. But if you have, you know, a sizable marketing budget, where do you think are your best dollars spent? Um, you said radio, so how do you get on the radio? Um, and if it's not, you know... I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know that that's necessarily your best dollar mm -hmm. spent, especially because mm -hmm. radio is, is a tough nut to crack, mm -hmm. and you can waste a lot of money mm -hmm. there if you're just a, a baby band. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I don't know that that would be mm -hmm. where... I would, I would, you know, I, I, I still believe that you really have to have a fan base. That's, that's your every band's first job. Mm -hmm. And if you're in one town, you need to block that town down and be able to turn out hundreds of people at least. Mm -hmm. and, and then you need to go to the next town and do that and just keep building it that way. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, there's no shortcuts. Mm -hmm. you know, any shortcut that works is going to result in a kind of effervescent success anyway. It'll mm -hmm. go away quickly mm -hmm. when people f did, who didn't know you forget the song or whatever mm -hmm. it was that they, they liked about you. And that's, that's you know, I, so, so I, I guess I would I would spend money um, establishing my fan base locally, you know, making sure that that somebody who was writing there would like me and mm -hmm. was writing about it. Mm -hmm. And so, when you so Amici and Kevin, you have services that you know artists use to promote and distribute. How do you determine your price elasticity? How do you determine what you think artists and labels are willing to spend? For us, it's really about um, <clears throat> making it as affordable as possible, really. I mean, it's, uh, there isn't a lot of money going around for a lot of the, especially the indie artists, so what are you going to charge them some exorbitant amount of, of money just to meet your numbers, you know, but they won't be able to afford it, doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. So ours is still a work in progress, quite honestly, and as we build more features, we'll be able to, you know, increase our revenue as we're able to release more products for our customers, we'll be able to, to build more revenue. So. 
you know, if we're doing bulk deals, of course, we'll, we'll you know, we'll make deals that work for larger mm -hmm. catalogs. But for us, it's sort of uh, understanding our customers. And we spend a lot of time sitting down with record labels and artists and getting mm -hmm. to a, a real understanding of what they can pay, mm -hmm. you know, and w what they need more than anything, which has been a, an eye-opener. So many of them have said, wow, no one's ever asked us what, what we need. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the music companies, because they're, they're used to people trying to impose things on them and mm -hmm. say, we have this new technology, we're smarter than you dinosaurs, and uh, you need to use this to, to, to evolve into the new, mm -hmm. you know, the new ecosystem without ever having spent a day on the other side mm -hmm. and understanding what artists or labels or managers actually go through and what their pain points are. You know? And I think, again, there's, there's a lot of work to be done to really understand what both sides need, and there's, there's work to do to, to make it a more efficient and more uh, mutually beneficial relationship. Mm -hmm. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, well, for our standpoint, we don't necessarily offer and charge just for our marketing, marketing service mm -hmm. of various tiers, right? We offer a, sort of an all-in-comprehensive service that's going to include distribution and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, license negotiation and, and delivery, and, and as well as sales and retail marketing. So, uh, you know, for us, we price on a commission basis, like many uh, of our competitors in the market, where where we aren't taking any money or, or uh, being paid at all until we start to see some sales mm -hmm. from the product. Um, but, you know, I think the, con uh, the question about pricing for any sort of artist promotional service in the market right now is a definitely a tough one. And, and it is, there's a lot of stuff you can do for a few dollars a year, from setting up and running your store to, to you know, your, your Facebook band pages and, and stuff like that. It's, uh, it's an interesting time because there are so many new companies coming in trying to figure out how to solve these problems for artists right now that uh, you know, sometimes the only way to get any traction is to go free. Mm -hmm. And then it's a question of how long can you sustain and how can you sort of make that turn from, from free into paid for mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the companies. So it's, uh, it's an interesting time and I think a tough one in, in that artist services marketplace. So. Mm -hmm. I also think it's about not being greedy you know, I mean, because we look at ourselves more of like a bright cover, a first data, just conceptually, where our, you know, the fans of our customers don't need to know who we are. That's unimportant and irrelevant. If we can make a little tiny piece, you know, of, of a lot of stuff going mm -hmm. on, that's a win for us. You know, mm -hmm. we don't need to step on all the money, you mm -hmm. know, and we don't need to fight over every penny. You know, it's, if we're providing a value that our customers, to our customers and they enjoy the platform, they're benefiting from even just the promotional aspects of the platform, then chances are they're gonna pay us. Right, right that's good. Yeah. So um, in terms of, of, of discovery and new talent, um, it sounds like you know what everyone here is in agreement on, there is no one thing, there's no silver bullet. You've gotta test everything, it's ultimately the quality. So Jamie, you were at the Grammys last night so everyone on the panel see is there some is there a, a new artist that you have discovered in the last um, few years that you would have liked to have seen get more attention? Who is that woman Adele? I heard <laughs> the sweep. Uh, right. yeah. Oh, you know, I mean, I, I can't even name one. There's you know, there's hundreds of artists mm -hmm. who deserve more attention, mm -hmm. and um, you know, the Grammys remains a. You know, I mean, it's it's a kind of a, a holdover, mm -hmm. but, you know, in a way. It, but it's still, you know, it's it's of wide interest to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. and I have nothing to say intelligently. <laughs> <about that. laughs> no, just question. <laughs> so, I mean, this is I one thing. Is, 100%. Yeah. So, again, so people are discovering music, you know, through their friends, on Facebook, you know, reading blogs, you know, going to a concert, seeing someone walking down the street. You know, something that, you know, we've been thinking a lot of at Yahoo is, the, you know, the live music, um, you know, if you don't live in one of the 10 cities where a band is touring, you will never see them. You'll never see them perform live. Do, do you think that this is something that the internet can help, you know, people throughout the country, throughout the world, discover new music that they might otherwise hear? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a great thing, but I'll also say, when I was growing up, I mean, you would travel the three, four, five, eight, ten hours, and I've done shows where kids have come across the country for the show because that's the only chance they were going to have to see that act. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a fan, you know. Right. Like fans right. have to be real fans, you know, real fans again. And we used right. to wait up in line for tickets to shows. Now you can't even do that because all right. the tickets are already gone. But it's still, I mean, the fans have to 
can't be as passive, right, I think. Right. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. And I think part of that passivity is due to the lack of excitement over the music. Right. Well, I was a deadhead, so I went right. on the so tour. You know. I saw a lot of shows <laughs> when I should have been in school. But you oh. wouldn't have watched a streamed version of the concert and felt sad, feel satisfied by no. that. And, and the, then I, I would view the streaming mm-hmm. as a great thing and an ability to monetize. Mm-hmm. But it also makes you want to go to see the show right. live. It's a, it's but a I listened experience. to a lot of really poor quality cassette tapes of bootlegs that my friend recorded with their, you know, little Sony Walkman, you know, recorder. So I think, and that's what you know. I think that what the internet does now is, it facilitates, you know, you know, the Grateful Dead sort of really created the model of giving away the music, encouraging their fans to tape it and pass it around, and then became, you know, yeah. the the highest grossing touring band of all time. I think, you know. Yeah. So that's something that, you know, again, that's sort of going back to the sort of the freemium models, you know, promotional use, give your fans what they want, develop a fan base, and that there's so many tools now on the internet um, that, again, I think, you know, it is a constantly evolving process and with emerging business models, I think, I think it was Amici said, you just can't, everyone can't be greedy, you know, every, you know, some people could be greedy, but not everyone can be. I also think simulcasting has a huge, mm-hmm. huge potential. Mm-hmm. I mean, the technology maybe isn't quite there yet, but we're working on something now, which is broadcasting live audio. So if you're a band or you're a label and, and you're doing a show in, in Oakland, but you know you have all these fans in Williamsburg that can't make it to the show, you can provide access, you know, an audio stream of this live performance, and you can monetize that. Mm-hmm. And video, was, I mean, that, I think that would be a, an incredible thing if you could simulcast a, a show worldwide, mm-hmm. you know, for, and, 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 and monetize that. Mm-hmm. There's so many people who would yeah. pay for it. I mean, we d- at Yahoo, we um, streamed live the Clinton Benefit concert with Lady Gaga and, you know, a bunch of artists. And, you know, it was a funny time. It was 9 o'clock on the West Coast, so midnight on the East Coast. But millions and millions of people saw it, and many, many millions more saw it on demand the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And so... And, you know, again, the, the idea is that, you know, you're going to develop a fan base if people hear your music. Yeah. You know, obviously the live experience, physical, is always better, but if you don't have that luxury, um, isn't that what it's all about, is just getting people to hear your music? That's right. All right, so... Um, we got two minutes. If everyone wants to give a wrap-up of your one piece of advice to either an artist or a tech company you know, trying to navigate these waters through all your years and years of experience, my esteemed panel. Um, you know, starting with you, Amici, what one pearl of wisdom would you give our audience? Um, oh gosh, going to banking? I don't know. <laughs> Just be sure that this is what you want to do with your life from the artist standpoint, because it's not about the money. It can never be about the money. If it is about the money, you're in the wrong industry, especially right now. It's about the creating great art, and I'm not trying to sound esoteric or, or non-businessy about it, but that's, that's the fact of the matter. If people don't want it, if it's not compelling, you're never going to sell it anyway. I mean, you may get lucky for a year because you're a great marketer, but you're going to have no longevity. So if you're in it <clears throat> to be a big baller and to, be, to live in the life, you've know, you got to earn that, and you earn that on the back of years and years of hard work and making great music. And then, sure, you can be Bono, right? But uh, if you're just in it because you think you want to be famous, do us a favor, you know. <laughs> Go somewhere else. Do it because you want to make, because you want to change the world, because you want to be like the police who wanted to be the greatest band in the world, or you wanted to be like, you know, a big tradition in, in hip hop is I want to be the best MC on the planet. I want to be the best. That's the way it used to be. Now it's about I want to be the most famous. But that's our culture in general. So I think you've seen a, a dilution of the, the power of our culture based on the need to want to be famous instead of the need to want to be great. So I'll speak strictly from, from that standpoint. Know what you're getting into and, and be prepared to invest your soul into it because that's the only way you're going to win. Yeah, I think those two last points would go if you're going to speak to the sort of technology side of things here. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sure we didn't answer... Uh, uh, even a fraction of the questions that would really go into sort of how do you go in and do this stuff, but but come prepared, like do your homework, and I'm you know everybody here. It's a good first step, I think. And uh, 
the you know one of the things from a content owner standpoint is just know know the licensing landscape, come in educated, and uh, hopefully with the clue of what's achievable and what's been done before. I agree with that point from a uh, distribution, a, a, a startup point of view. It, really identify what your needs truly are. Don't look at, you know, I want everything, but, you know, identify specifically what could work and then um, don't give up and just keep pushing. Yeah, I, I just would amplify that thought and, and on from the other speakers is that you re it's really not easy and you, and you shouldn't think it is. Um, I'm, I really like the, uh, there's the old Winston Churchill quote. He got, somebody asked him, what, what is the meaning of success? And he says, success is the ability to move from failure to failure with enthusiasm. <laughs> um, and I think if you keep that at the front of your mind, um, you'll you know, uh, be enthusiastic. All right, well, thank you so much to my panel. Um, Anyway, I guess, can we, do we have a few minutes to open up to questions? If anyone has any questions for my illustrious panel? Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, it, it can play into their revenue stream, um, you know, when, when their music is popular and people want to license it. And so you can't plan for it very effectively. You know, you might, if you were running a record label with a lot of, you know, big name artists, you could say, you know, some percentage of this is going to, you might set targets for yourself, but, but for an individual artist, you know, you could be in one day and out the next. So if you, you think it's going to keep coming, unless it's something like a theme to a TV show that goes in syndication. Um, uh, my band, They Might Be Giants, wrote the theme song for a TV show called Malcolm in the Middle, and we almost walked away from it for about $1,000. We were arguing with Fox, who were, I hate to surprise you, they were total assholes. Um, and, um, <laughs> But um, they, um, and we didn't, and it was just a pilot. And so we, you know, we didn't think twice about it. And then it became a TV show. And then it, went, it, it was a successful TV show that went into syndication. And it was probably, you know, the single greatest thing financially that ever could happen to them or, you know, most bands. And uh, it's, sort of, it's sort of petering out now. But uh, it really, you know, added some grace to their life. But you, you would never ever be able to plan for that. So that's, I guess, my point. Yeah, I think it's, I totally agree, and it's a complete lottery. But it's worth it to try and play the lottery, because if you can, if you get a winning ticket, you, you know, that artist or that label, especially on the indie ones, could, they could be all right. And also understand that it's a global licensing community now. It's not just about America or just about, you know, the UK or what have you. I've been licensing music to Romania, Bulgaria, South Africa, Israel, Russia, you name it. They're, these economies are now coming online, they're media economies, and they're looking for content. So you've got to cast a wide net as well and not just travel down the same typical avenues to try and, you know, competing with the million other same people who are going for the one opportunity, you know. Um, cast a wide net and, and, and cross your fingers. When it comes to uh, streaming media, as you mentioned streaming media, right. um, who pays whom or that? Would it be um, between the venue, the artist? How would you see a payment structure? Yeah, it's if I could sort of speak this from a like a festival promoter hat. Uh, it's not easy, right? So streaming media in a club, right? If you think about it that from that standpoint, um, and businesses built around that, there haven't been a lot of them, but there's been people that tried, right? The, the equipment to do it, the infrastructure is, is a big thing right there, and many, many clubs are not gonna have the pipes that are in place that are gonna allow you to do that. So you might end up paying somebody to bring that in, depending on the venue. You're gonna pay a, a venue fee, maybe some extra fees, hopefully they aren't union. You know, they're all of that stuff before you even get down into the mechanics between what you might be able to do between uh, an artist and some other mm -hmm. sort of provider. And I'd think that the expectations might be along those of, of other sort of digital media revenue deals, which are mm -hmm. gonna favor the, the artist or the creator yep. uh, to, a, to a decent degree. So um, it, yeah. it, it's pretty pretty expensive it's, proposition it's, to get it's into. It's expensive. You know, we, you know, Yahoo just streamed um, a concert with Pitbull and 50 Cent at the Super Bowl. Budweiser took over a hotel in Indiana and created this whole thing. And, you know, 
wanted to do a big engagement, so they came to us and asked us to do it. And of course, at the 11th hour, no one had obtained the artist clearances or the label clearances, and someone had to go out and get that done. And you know, Yahoo obviously paid the streaming costs and has the ASCAP and BMI license to cover the publishing, right? But it's expensive. And uh, so I think it, it all, you know, like everything, it comes down to a negotiation as well. Yeah, in any scale, yeah. I mean, I do think most of the, 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 the cases in which it's been successful are going to be with large audiences and major artists. Yep. Uh, and, you know, I tend to think of everything through an independent sort of lower, lower level filter. Um, and it's definitely tough to make it happen mm -hmm. at that level. But I think it's cool. And it is cool. should do it if you can get the money. <laughs> What, we've got time for one more question, if anyone has a question or wants another funny story from Jamie. All right, thank you all Thanks. so much.